0: Welcome to Viewpoints. Today with us we have Eric Perry. Um, I'd like to welcome you, Eric. I've known you. I don't know if you've known, kept track of our uh, time that we've known each other, but I met Eric in 2007 after I became involved in the National um, Emergency Number Association. <clears throat> Eric's history to public safety is quite impressive with over 53 years of experience. He is a published author Uh, international consultant, um, a master in emergency medical call processing models, and remains involved in current issues. Uh, He, along with his wife, Joe, have supported me and encouraged me through my career and what I can best describe as, at times, uncomfortable growth. Um, Eric, it's an honor and a privilege to have you with us today.
1: Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Talking about Um, uncomfortable growth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, there have been moments of uncomfortable growth. Um, So I guess I want to start out by talking to you about your law enforcement career and um, what prompted you to go from that into retirement into where you are today.
1: Well, it's a long story, but I'll try and give you the Reader's Digest version. I started out as a technologist before I joined the uh, Federal Police Organization Canada, the Royal Canadian Mounted of Police. Because of my technical background over my career, which spanned 24 years, uh, I took an interest in anything to do with police communications, which brought me into a position where I was involved with what we called our operational communication centers. <clears throat> Which back in those days was pre nine one one, And that's where all our emergency calls came to. And I I don't know, I I recognized one of the things that caught my attention was the amount of stress leave and the amount of time off that was occurring in our comp centers. And there was about oh 20 of them in the province of British Columbia that uh, I was kind of overseeing to a degree. <clears throat> and I and I thought. it's kind of got me thinking about do we why do we have why do we have this kind of thing happening in our communication centers and it was it was odd to me because some of our centers that had the the lowest call volume had the most amount of stress leave so it got me interested I started talking to our staffing people and I discovered that we didn't really have a good uh hiring practice we didn't have established standards for um For the civilian telecommunicators, if I can call them that, that uh, we were hiring. So we didn't have we didn't have a a job profile established. Therefore, we didn't have solid um, hiring standards, and that led me to uh, uh, actually it led me to a discussion with an industrial psychologist that the um, the the RCMP uh, that I worked for had in our nation's capital, Dr. Anna Gray. And we got to talking and we talked about psychometric testing. And I'm talking like the early 90s here. And we talked about psychometric testing. We talked about uh, personality profiling, a whole bunch of things. Anyway, the short version of the story is we revamped our selection and hiring standards for uh, telecommunicators. And that led me to a panel presentation in nina uh nina conference national emergency number association conference in montreal in 1993 so i arrived there thinking "Eh, you know i'm doing all this stuff and you know i'm sure that others are kind of doing the same thing and anyway i get there and as it turns out everybody's like wow really you've done all you know you've got selection and hiring standards and you've got like interviews and things that you do uh, yeah, so that that brought me to Nina and Nina changed my my life completely <clears throat> because um, as a result of some of that work I had done I was asked to to write a book um, called managing the 911 Center it's, there's copies on it of it on eBay for like 200 bucks so I don't get any of that money but anyway um, so I did I wrote this book took me five years and <clears throat> kind of the the other volunteer work that I did with Nina, they created an education uh, program, and I was asked to chair the education advisory board, which was a volunteer position. And I think when I started into that, our Nina program back in those days, I think it had two courses: it had a puzzle course and the basic 911 or a, um, uh, an addressing book. Anyway, <clears throat> one thing led to another; we started to create uh, courses. Uh, I, re- I retired from the RCMP and started to consult. Nina recommended me to a job uh, in Argentina. There's some folks that had approached Nina. They needed uh, somebody that had some uh, police background with um, uh, you know some 911 experience. And I, before I left the force, I had done a 911 implementation in a small city in uh, central Alberta. So I had this 911 thing that was going on. And um, and so I next thing I know, I'm on a plane going to Argentina, you know, and um, it, the project went well until the mayor got arrested for fraud and thrown in jail. That was the end of that project. Um, and, and then another thing happened to me. Um, there was a gentleman named Bill Bailey from Priority Dispatch, which is the, uh, <clears throat> the company in um, Salt Lake City that does, the protocols for police, fire, and EMS, uh, EMS EMD. So I, um, he was he. I, as I was giving this course, I was actually teaching a course in Florida. He was he was in the student. He stands up and he said, "Yeah, we're doing a we're doing a comp center in Argentina, looking for somebody with some background. If anybody's you know what is interested in helping our company do implement EMD, uh, let me know." So I. I went and had a chat with him next thing I know I'm on a plane to Argentina again and um and one thing led to another they uh in Salt Lake City they had a need for a police consultant and we had just my wife and I had just renovated this big house in Canada and we were this is going to be our place next thing you know we're in the U-Haul U- heading to Salt Lake City and and so that's kind of my career has jumped all over the place and sometimes i'm asked you know how did you end up doing this i mean we've uh I, this is my 53rd year now in public safety and um the past 20 some odd years have been working not only in the united states as a consultant but um i've gone to hong kong and uh, thailand and malaysia wow. uh, england and and i just You know, whenever, whenever somebody has come to me and said, hey, can you, I need some help with this, or do you know anything about that? I would always say, yeah, sure, I'll help. Or yeah, um, sure, I'll go to Argentina. (laughs) So one of the, one of the things I make the joke, I just can't say no, when I'm asked to do something. So, and that's kind of been the story of my story of my public safety life. Now, having said that, uh, there's been hills and valleys and ups and downs over the years. Um, uh, I think it's important for everybody to know that's uh, listening to to me rattle on here is that um, you know life does throw it ain't a, a bowl of cherries. Is that uh, often we get into situations in this profession where it becomes difficult to uh, to figure what ha- what needs to happen next. And so, and so it is. Uh, right now I find myself doing consulting for 911 centers for PSAPs that are experiencing problems. And, um, and, and it's sort of a great, it's a great place to arrive at after, I often make the joke after, it only took me 50 some odd years to find the perfect job. But now I'm doing, uh, you know, picking and choosing the work I do. Like I said, I'm 72, but I'm still kicking. Uh, alive and well and uh, loving some of this work I'm still doing and I think it's important and Sherry you'll, you'll understand this that it's important that we find a way to give back and I often make the joke that um, the reason I'm I'm able to do some of these things I do is because I've made all those mistakes in the past you know back in the day where we weren't sure what we were doing you know we thought we were Doing the right thing by hiring hiring certain people or giving them certain uh, t- uh, you know tests uh, whatever some of them were good some of them were bad. My journey took me to Salt Lake City, and as a police kind of a police communications guy, I didn't know anything about protocol. So when I went to Salt Lake City, I was instrumental in developing police protocol for priority dispatch. And so it's just it's been a journey, and uh, I've had. You know, I've I've got my wife, who's a great supporter and champion. I drag her to all the conferences. Um, And I can tell you one thing that if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be doing half of the stuff I'm doing because she's been uh, my support over the past 23 years.
0: That's very cool to hear. Um, I have your book. I don't know. uh, I was, uh, let's see, that was in the mid 90s, I believe, uh, my chief went to a conference and came back with three books, the GIS book, the 911 puzzle book, and the center management book. He's like, Sherry, read these. These are going to help you. And so I'm like, Eric Perry, where's he work? Um, And I, I always thought, well, that'd be cool, you know, to do that. And well, that'd be cool to be part of Nina. And I, um, I love hearing your story because I'm sure when you were working for the what is it, Royal Canadian Police (RCP), is that right?
1: RCMP. Uh, yeah, close. RCMP.
0: Enough. Okay, um, I'm sure you didn't think, "Hey, yeah. someday I'm going to be traveling all over the world doing nine-one-one um, consulting."
1: Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, I never when I when I <clears throat> when I retired from the RCMP. I really wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I knew I had kind of, you know, there's an expression: once you get bitten by the bug, and I had gotten bitten by the bug, um, and I knew that my my journey that took me to that panel in Montreal in 1993, that panel discussion on selection and hiring, it sort of was an eye opener for me because I, I soon, well, number one, I was rubbing shoulders with some awesome people. Uh, that was one of the big things that really hit me right between the eyes at that conference is the great people the bob Cobb's of the world and some yeah. of, some of the other folks the sharon counterman's of the world who uh who were just like we were so like-minded and and one of the things that really grabbed me was that there's this mountain of work that needs to be done to make this profession better and and i thought boy if there's any one little thing i can do to help with that then it like i said it's it's taught me over the years that uh, uh, it's really important to get engaged if you're in this profession <clears throat> to figure a way that you can get back, whether it's joining Nina or APCO or learning more about what, you know, what's out there in terms of the standards and things like that. Because we do we do have some distance to go. <clears throat> I don't think it's any secret that uh, we have a staffing crisis right now in 911. Right. And, and I've been at this a long time. And I think we're just starting in the profession to figure out what needs to be done or what we're doing wrong. We're just beginning to uh, put our arms around wellness. Um, we have probably one of the bigger problems that's been, in my opinion, anyway, that's been staring us in the face. It's this whole PTSD that goes on, um, that that often goes unrecognized in in that our culture and our 911. Emergency communication center culture, we we just haven't done that well, and I think that's part of why people come and go in this profession. And I think um, with the help of, you know, like the Michelle Lillies of the world, um, that we're finding we're we're beginning to find out what's going on. And there's a whole new movement now uh, with regard to wellness that's uh, that's long overdue. I mean, we've talked about it, but we've never really dug in and got serious.
0: Uh, right. So. I agree. Um, one of the reasons that I thought it'd be fun to have you on the show, uh, is when I work with new dispatchers, um, uh, th- one of the common terms that has always driven me crazy was, well, you know, I'm just a dispatcher. If you want to talk to an officer." I- And I'm like, no, I kind of freak out a little bit. You're not just a dispatcher. You are a dispatcher. Uh, And I always try and tell them there's so much more to this career, this profession than dispatching. So when people say, well, you know, this is a dead end job. um, And and I know that you have a lot of those experiences. That's why I was uh, really happy that you agreed to be on with us.
1: Um, well, I, ha- did- I have very strong opinions about that. Um, yes,
0: I'd like to hear. Sorry, him. I
1: didn't mean to talk over you. But I have, very strong I have very strong opinions about that. And I one of the things I can say is law enforcement has done a horrible job of managing 911. And it's only since, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> it's only since we've had, uh, you know, communications centers, PSAPs, call them what you will, moved out from under, law enforcement, that things are starting to change. We need to be able to give our call takers and dispatchers the tools they need to do the work properly. We need to have them trained properly. We have to have them, um, we have to have solid quality assurance programs in place that can look at how we can be better. Um, traditionally in back in my day, the only time you review the call is when somebody, uh, something went horribly wrong.
0: Right. And,
1: and back then we were winging it, you know, I, I can remember like, there's the phone, there's the radio. And it was like an old fashioned phone. There's the phone, there's the radio. When the phone rings, you answer it. There's a the typewriter type up the call. That was it. Okay. And, uh and so that's that I'm talking in extremes here to make my point, but that's how it was. Back in the '70s, um, <clears throat> it's changed a lot. We've certainly got all kinds of technology now that's helping us, but it's still the uh, the person who answers that call that's sitting in a comp center somewhere. They th- this is much more than historically what we've tended, what law enforcement uh, has tended to look at insofar as that kind of work goes. So it's it, we're we're way beyond the time when we need to be having proper training, the proper tools, the proper technology, people that uh, are trained to be fast thinkers and critical thinkers and be thinking ahead. Those are all things that we're now just starting to kind of understand and and put into place. I, like I said, I came to Salt Lake City. I didn't know what protocol, I had a vague idea what protocol was, but um, I was tasked with uh, trying to develop some kind of system for 911. That did a better job of uh, triaging police calls, and and I tell you that was the biggest challenge of my life trying to figure that out. It took me two years to even understand what had to be done before we could move forward and actually do it. So um, and, and so I guess where I'm going in all of this is that we we still have things that we have to deal with and figure out in this whole profession, and it's through organizations like NINA. It's and APCO and the academy that uh, that we're we're doing a better job. We didn't have ENP certification when I first got mixed up with Nina. It came along a few years after that. Now this ENP emergency N- number professional certification is has become a very important thing in uh, in terms of being able to credential a public safety professional. Nina has also. You know opened up their membership to telecommunicators or to disband whatever we're calling them these days um and that that now we have people in peace apps that are in eccs that are aspiring to become enps and i'm still i'm this is my last year on the nina institute board that's where you and i met right uh and and i you know it's time for me to step aside let Somebody else, uh, you know, somebody younger with uh, you know, better ideas than me, to jump into the into those shoes. And um, yeah, but we got to keep this train going. We really. Do.
0: I I um you you talked about Nina changing the course of your you know your life. Uh, I would say the same. Uh, but the Nina Institute board, I don't think people really understand that certification yet. I think it's getting there. Uh, but I have to say, getting my ENP, that opened up my eyes and so many doors. And I tell new dispatchers that all the time. You know, there's a certification that you can take that's recognized internationally. Uh, it's such a big piece of what we can, you know, aspire to now.
1: Yeah, and you know. Um... <clears throat> having been with the program since its inception i'm one of the few old timers still uh, uh, that have been involved with that that whole nina institute board the np process of development over the years i i must admit that sitting around that group of in in those meetings around that group of people the um the combined uh number one the combined ex- years of experience let alone the knowledge can be quite overwhelming to the to the new ones that come along but it's a personal choice to get your emp often people say well why should i get this you know what am i going to get out of it am i going to get more money uh you know am am i going to get what what's in it for me and and i turn that around i say well it's not about what's in it for you it's it's what what's in it for the profession you know um it becomes a personal choice it's something that you make a decision to aspire to and that you should pursue and i think we need to that's one of the ways that we need to change the thinking of the way people think uh or have been you know um, trained to think or forced to think is that you know this there's a there's a huge opportunity out there to get involved with organizations like apco and nina and and You know, that's where I started. I started on a panel and not knowing anybody or not sure what the heck I was talking about. And it just kind of went from there. It just went from there, just Mm -hmm. things started to to happen. It's uh, some of the choices I made, things start to fall into place. Um, And it's something I would encourage anybody that is listening to my rant here to give serious consideration to getting involved with Nina, getting, you know, there's state, Chapters, there's uh, Canada, there's a couple of Nina chapters or get involved with APCO. You know, there's APCO chapters all over the place. Uh, APCO Canada um, is another. If there's any Canadians listening to this. I'm a Canadian, by the way, uh, but I uh, got naturalized. So uh, I'm, I have dual citizenship. So I can talk out of both sides of my mouth.
0: Hey. A. <laughs> um. I want to go back to uh, for a minute to the protocols. Uh, it seems like EMD is more accepted than uh, the police protocols. Uh, what I've heard from many police chiefs and upper management in a police department is, we don't want the dispatchers to be bogged down with uh, questions like that. And so regardless of the protocol system that's being used, uh, it's really met with some resistance. Now you started in law enforcement. How do you think you would have felt if you can put yourself back in those law enforcement shoes? How do you think you would have felt now? And um, how do you, I mean, you developed the curriculum, so, or the protocols for the agency in Salt Lake City, but do you know what I'm asking?
1: Yeah, I do. So okay. way back in, this would have been around 1977 or 78, probably before you were born, Sherry.
0: Um, <laughs> I was sitting there at my desk
1: thinking, Thinking, I was sitting at my desk as a young constable thinking, you know, knowing what I was hearing, what I was hearing in our, you know, as we uh, started to listen to and review calls, I thought there has to be a better way uh, because it was just hit and miss. And it was kind of people flying by the seats of their pants. And I actually developed a very rudimentary kind of flow chart, um, which I thought was a terrific idea, but didn't go anywhere at the time, because uh, nobody was really interested. in it. But I knew that it was all tied into the bigger picture. And I knew that someday, someday that You know, as I as I progressed uh, through my my career and as the world changed, I had heard about the the medical protocols. And that's kind of what got me. I had gone to a conference and I'd come back with a little floppy diskette uh, of um, uh, an early version of a medical protocol. And I thought it would be pretty cool if we had this for police, but we really don't need it because, you know, police calls are quite different from medical and fire. So fast forward 20 years late, 20 some odd years later, I'm sitting there scratching my head, trying to figure out how I can, how we could come up with a, a different system, a better system for police call taking. And over the years, it's been quite a journey. I think law enforcement is continues to be fairly resistive to that idea, but I have to say that the police protocol system that I helped develop way back is now catching on and it's in uh, it's a very progressive and big and small piece zone, so, you know, both in Canada and the United States. And you know, the you can you can argue it every which way you want, but at the bottom line, um, what what I had to learn over the years is how is a police call different than a medical or a fire call? And it took me a while to figure that out because as I'm sitting there at my desk in Salt Lake city with guys like Jeff Clawson coming in and saying, Hey, how come we're not selling more of this police protocol? What's wrong with you? How come it's not, how come nobody like, you know, is catching on and la la la. And I, and I was sitting there feeling quite like, you know, how the heck am I going to figure this shit out? So uh, as time went on, uh, we developed a very rudimentary and early version of the protocol. We developed software for it. It wasn't until we had the software developed that it, it became feasible because police calls are almost diametrically opposite to fire and medical call. Fire and medical calls are usually go-now calls, and they're very predictable. Some would argue that, but they're fairly predictable. You know, it's a fire. It's somebody that's going to get worse, get better, stay the same. Um, and it much easier to get our heads around a protocol system for those types of calls. Whereas police, it's like, are you kidding me? No, they, that'll never work. But it, in actual fact, it does work. And we, over the years, in fact, they just released version seven. And by the way, I still teach the protocol. Um, they just came out with version seven of the police protocol, which is very fast, slick, um, and, um, and, and actually, uh, is is uh, probably the best system that's out there right now. Of course, I'm biased, but I okay. still remain on the police council of staff. But, you know, you can argue this every which way you want. Bottom line is there's certain things you got to do on every call. There's certain questions that you must ask on every call. And depending on what type of call it is and where it takes you, um, uh, then your protocol becomes your safety net that's the best way i can say it when you're brand new and you don't have like the 20 some odd years and sitting there in the center and you suddenly have a child abduction or a, an active assailant an right. active shooter you better know what to do and that's where the protocol you can go to that right away and, and uh, that becomes your safety net so i went from a skeptic to a, a full supporter uh, and ambassador uh, for a protocol system. And you don't have to use the priority dispatch system. There's other ones out there.
0: Right. I always
1: say something's better than nothing, but you do, and then you can argue it again. You can say, okay, show me a question in this protocol that you wouldn't ask. And people look at it and say, well, no, we'd ask every one of those. And they, well, there you go. So what this does is it makes sure that you ask those. And it makes sure that if it's a, an urgent call that you dispatch right away, if it's one that is a cold call, and you can take your time with that. And the other thing, just just to kind of close the loop on this discussion, is that I mentioned earlier that most fire and ambulance or police or medical calls are go now calls. The yes. vast majority of them are go now calls. Police calls are kind of the opposite. You know, we have very few police calls. Anecdotally, you think, oh yeah, every police calls like lights and siren. It isn't. Most of police calls are cold calls. or things that have happened in the past. There's things that don't require a full interrogation and they're not go now calls. And that, when I had that revelation back in Salt Lake uh, in 2002 or three or four, whenever it was um, that kind of changed everything. And then the other thing I got to mention to you is that there was one little 911 center in the middle of nowhere, Southern Alberta that decided they were going to take that protocol and beat the crap out of it and make it work. And uh, if it wasn't for them, being the gutsy ones to take the first step at a at a protocol that hadn't been tested or, you know, really beaten up much by, by uh, you know, the industry. And they changed everything. They changed the direction of everything. And uh, uh-huh. it was just one or two people that believed, that thought it was, yeah, this might just, this just might work. Let's try and make it work. And that changed everything. Medicine had Alberta. Jackie Fox.
0: Um, I really want to point that out to our listeners, you know, how often do we get bogged down with thinking, well, I'm just one person, I can't really make a difference and I can't speak for anything else because public safety is all I've known all my life. Uh, but one person really can change the course in public safety.
1: and 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 i i didn't go at it it really this might sound really cliche but i just i just saw these things that i thought somebody needed to figure out and nobody appeared to be figuring it out at least i didn't know anybody that was figuring it out and so i thought okay i'm not you know i'm not the i'm not i i'm by no means albert einstein but there were things that clearly weren't making sense that I thought I'm going to see if I can just, you know, ask a few questions and get some help. And it's like, the other thing I think it's important, it's not all about you. It's not all about me. I, you know, the, the things that I've done over the years, I can never have done them by myself. There's always other people that have been helping me or coaching me uh, or that I've, you know, drawn in, picking their brains Uh it's it's like anything else. It's never one person. It's like it's kinda like if I can talk about Wayne Gretzky, who's a renowned hockey player, you know, he was uh he was kind of touted as the uh the great one. But when you look at Wayne Gretzky or any other sports hero or anybody that's you know achieved something, they've never done it by themselves. Gretzky wasn't one hockey player on a hockey team. You know there were 15 other guys there in a coach and a whole thing that were making him or that were enabling him to be the champion he was and and um I'm, I'm by no means drawing that analogy to myself but the one thing is 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 important that if you if you believe in something or you have an idea to try and pursue it but you're going to need help doing it and don't be afraid to ask for that help i said earlier if i if the day I called my wife and said, hey, I'm being offered this job in Salt Lake City. We just renovated a house. We'd only been married a few few months. Let's, do you want? I, but I, in order to take that job, I, we got to move to Salt Lake City. She says, all right. Let's wow. move to Salt Lake City. <laughs> and then, yeah, you have and to so, be you know, surrounded. I'm driving a U-Haul across Iowa with the wind, the wind blowing, the U-Haul, trying to keep the U-Haul on the, in the middle of January trying to keep the U-Haul on the road heading south to Salt Lake City.
0: Oh, that's so, when yeah. you moved in January. Huh. Yeah, January yeah, you...
1: 2002 is like two weeks before the, the Winter Olympics.
0: <laughs> oh. Huh. I, I just, you know, you've said it a couple times. You really do have to surround yourself by like-minded people who are I know that's really cliche. I understand, but yeah. you have to surround yourself with people who are where you want to be or going where you want to go. And, um, how often do we get down in the wrong path? You know, not following yeah. the, where we should.
1: Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you, you just reminded me of a couple things there. Um, it's, it, it's funny, but when I when I first, I talked a moment ago about going to, about Medicine Hat and how they took the protocol and made something out of it. It was interesting because my first visit there, they almost ran me out of town because there were people in the center that were violently opposed to the idea. And then it was like some switch got flipped. It took took a month, it took a few months, but it was like some switch got flicked and all of a sudden those people that were pushing back the hardest suddenly became the champions. And and so that taught me a valuable, valuable life lesson. And that is, it's okay to stick what you to what you believe in, because not everybody's gonna agree with you, but someday they may change. They may change and suddenly agree with you, which is a really uh, interesting thing of human nature that, that does happen. And so that's happened many times over the years where people will see something and they'll say, ah, that's not for That'll never work here. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, maybe we should give that a try.
0: Yeah. Stay the course. Uh, So I'm going to ask you two questions. Uh, What was your biggest challenge that, that you feel like you can talk about in your career?
1: Challenge. Well, there's been a few. Um, I guess work-wise, the biggest challenge was trying to figure out the protocol. That was a biggie because I couldn't phone a friend. Um, I was up against something that nobody else had done. At least I couldn't find anybody that had done it. And so I had to figure a way through that. And that was, again, I, I without a lie, I sat for two years, uh, almost reaching the point where I didn't think a police protocol was going to work ever anywhere and and so i don't know by fate or whatever uh or by just me not having the brains to give up um i just kept at it and then i ran into certain people that uh that were instrumental in you know helping me through that and it continues today actually because we're still developing that protocol, still evolving, it's still changing, it's still getting better. I had a call yesterday, uh, Police Council of Standards call where we're noodling through, you know, how can we make this better? A couple of things that, and the more users you get and the younger ones, the younger ones that get involved have the great ideas. And so that's why some stage of the game, the curmudgeons like me got to step aside and let the new blood come in and further you know, figure things out. Uh, okay, so that was, I think there's there's probably two difficult things. One was um, the challenge of developing a protocol. Probably the second most difficult thing for me was getting fired by the state of Utah after I was the 911 program manager there for five years. Yeah. So, yeah. like I said earlier, there ain't no easy road here that, uh, you know, the typical career goes and, you know, uh, fits and starts. There's, there's some fairly significant hills and mountains and valleys to cross. But, um, at the end of the day, you gotta, you just gotta keep, you know, doing what you, what you believe in and what you enjoy. I, I think that's a big thing is I always, those, for those people that know me or work with me, I, I like to have fun. I'm always coming out with some absurd statements, uh, just to get people thinking. And um, yeah, so I'm still at it, still trying to figure stuff out, still trying to help the profession move forward.
0: I want to, I don't, you don't have to talk about what happened in Utah, but I guess I'd just like to highlight the fact that um, sometimes when we um, lose our way or, People lose our way for us, and you know we lose a job or have significant discipline. Sometimes that just knocks the people right off their feet, and they're like, "I'm done with this." Uh, but you, you just stayed the course. You just shifted a little. Uh, I think that's really admirable.
1: Yeah. Well, here's the other thing I, I've come to learn over the years is that when you're right, you're right. And if you know you're right and if you know you're doing the right thing, then you have to stick to that. Because often I know I'm right. And when I know I'm right, I'm right. And, I, and, right. and that that really gets that that will get you a long way if you stick to your stick to your guns. You know, you may be hearing bad things from people. We're famous, you know, I've run into a lot of professional jealousy. If you understand what I mean by that, I do over the years where people are jealous of you for, you know, they'll look at you in a, in a way that's not flattering because they're, what you're doing is bothering them or it's rubbing them the wrong way, or it's, you know, it's against what they believe or whatever. Um, so be it, that's going to happen. You know, I almost, I got heavily criticized for, for the book, for managing the nine one one center book for my own colleagues. What do you know about a book? (laughs) I don't know. I just and one of the curious things that every that book keeps coming back to haunt me. I was just in in Clearwater at the Nina um, Standards and Best Practices Conference, and this young guy has that I that I met. He's actually um, part of the Education Advisory Board. Young guy, he had the book. He brought it to he brought it to Clearwater. He said, "I want you to sign this." and uh and so you know i signed it um but the other thing that's the curiosity that's come out of that book is that people who read it they say i can hear you talking to me i can hear your voice in those words and i thought really <laughs> that's kind of cool yeah you know, where people read a book and they hear my voice you know that's not too many people can claim that one i guess i don't know
0: right um so okay, so we went over your challenges. What would be your biggest celebrations?
1: Hmm. Well, I got <clears throat> I got two fairly prestigious awards. I guess you could say those were celebrations. <clears throat> In um, two thousand nine I got the Nina Bill Stanton Award. I think that's there's a big about fifteen 15 or 16 of those handed out over the years. And then in 2017, I got the Jeff Clausen Leadership Award. So wow. those are, if we're talking celebrations, I think that's what you asked, uh, that would be too
0: The Bill Stanton um, Award, can you explain for our viewers what what that is?
1: Well, it's it's uh, a award that's uh, given out by NINA, National Emergency Number Association, and it's for uh, members of of NINA that have um, made significant contributions to things over the years, and um, I guess I was being recognized for my work with the education program for developing, you know, taking technology courses like wireless 911 and making a feeble attempt to put together a course that would help uh, people understand that, that, that's just one example. Um, uh, the book and um, my involvement with uh, the Institute board, there's a bunch of things I think that led up to that, <clears throat> but it's, it's, it's people that nominate, you know, members of the organization that perhaps have gone a little bit above and beyond and um and with clausen with <clears throat> the jeff clausen award uh it was clearly because of uh my refusing to give up on the police protocol yeah i don't give up either.
0: that's benefited thousands of people across the world probably more than thousands so we're well it's funny you
1: know because I, you never think. I never think of it like that. And <clears throat> and it somebody mentioned to me, I don't know what it, it was in the past year or somewhere that they said, "Yeah, you know, that thing you've done that's made a big difference, probably." And and I hadn't really stopped to think about it, but I do remember me sitting down with Jeff Clawson, who's the father of emergency medical dispatch, and I asked, I said the same thing to him. This would have been about five or five years ago. I said, do you ever, Jeff, do you ever stop and think about the impact that your harebrained idea had on the saving of lives and the betterment of what we do? I mean, it, that thing of his, it's in like, I don't know how many countries and how many languages. I mean, it's used all over the world. And it right. was just a kind of like an idea he had. If you ever hear him tell the story but it was the same kind of thing. I And I said to him, do you ever think about that? He kind of gave me this look like, well, not really.
0: <laughs> so, right. Human nature is a
1: funny thing, isn't it? You know?
0: It is. It is. If I remember that story, he wrote his first protocol idea out on a napkin.
1: <clears throat> yeah, to hear him tell the story, he was, he was a, a, doing an internship or whatever you call it. When you're uh resident what what is it when you're just young starting out as a doctor? I think
0: that's it Anyway, that's he an was in
1: emergency an injury, yeah, and he was working for this old doctor in in, in, in e r in the e r in salt lake city and and he was freaking out because this old doctor seemed to know what he was doing, all these patients coming in and 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 Jeff went to this old guy and said, doc,, I don't know how you do this, uh, yeah." All these different things coming in. I don't know how you keep them all straight, know what to do. And this old guy, this old doctor turned to him and said, son, what you need is a protocol. And this old guy hauled out recipe cards. And so, you know, as time marched on and Jeff, uh, uh, so the story goes, got a job on an ambulance service in Salt Lake City and tearing around, you know, going to calls, uh, medical calls. And these people were kind of like not getting the help they need after they had called for the ambulance, kind of thing. And so that's what prompted him to do the same thing. So he he actually has the he showed him to me. He's got recipe cards. It's got the his initial protocol on.
0: It. Wow, he kept them. Yeah, so you got to
1: start somewhere. So he shamed me into making that damn police protocol. <laughs> I did do it on recipe cards, but.
0: Well, I so you've given me examples of your own um contribution specifically to 911 to peace apps, but uh one person and you've made a huge difference in many many people's lives and then you gave me the example of Dr. Clausen doing the same and uh so for our viewers I really want to point out that uh, you are one person. You surround yourself with the right people. You can you can make huge differences in something that you believe in, that you're passionate about. So, uh, Eric, do you have any parting words for our audience? Any, anything else you can think of any teachable moment thought, um,
1: any pearls of wisdom,
0: any pearls of wisdom? Yeah,
1: well, Go after what you believe in. And as we stay in Canada, or as we say in Canada, keep your stick on the ice and you'll do fine.
0: Oh, hockey. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for joining us today, Eric. And um, you have a wonderful day. I hope to see you you in person soon.
1: Thank you. Been a pleasure.